great. Lord, I pray that uh, you might speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we've been looking at the Psalms for the last three months here at Hope Whangarei, at all three sites, in all four services. But we've only just scratched the surface. We've only done about 20 of them. And the series was called Psalms in the Key of Life, Songs of Hope Amidst Real Life. And I have hoped that as we've looked through these psalms, these songs of hope, that uh, God has spoken to you and uh, you've experienced uh, some of his presence. Maybe just take a minute just to turn to the person next to you and just share one thing that you've really uh, got out of uh, looking at the psalms. And if you're new here today, great, you can listen to what other people have got to say and you just go, oh, I'm new here, but uh, thank you for telling me that. So let's uh, just turn to one another and just very quickly, something that you have uh, got out of the series on the Psalms. By the sound of the conversation, it, a lot was got out of it, so that's great. And uh, please, over the cup of tea, not only celebrate Marjorie's uh, 100th, but uh, also continue just to share the things that you've, you've learnt with one another from the Psalms. And today we're going to finish off that series in what I think is an appropriate way. We're going to finish off the series uh, by looking at how the Psalms themselves finish by looking at Psalm 150, the last of the Psalms. We're going to end at the end. And the last five Psalms of the book, that's Psalm 146 to 150, form a doxology and conclusion to the whole collection. They are a series of Psalms that start and finish with hallelujah, which we know as praise the Lord that call people to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for creation. Praise the Lord for his sovereignty. Praise the Lord for his providence. Praise the Lord for his word. Praise the Lord for his salvation and care. Five calls to praise the Lord at the end of five books, which start in Psalm 1 with a call to live life seeing the Torah. And at that stage, that would be the five first books in the Bible, as God's Word, as the only reliable water source for life, seeing God's Word as a living water. And maybe you'd expect that this great book of prayers and songs would finish with some deeply profound statement about God. But to attempt to say something final about God would inevitably be anticlimactic. So what Psalm 150 rather does is it continues us to summons and to call us to worship. The book finishes with a call to worship. It builds into a crescendo of invites to come and praise the Lord. Like wave after wave, 
crashing on the shore, line after line. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Uh, it's an open invitation for all to come and hallelujah. For all to come and live a life of praise to the Lord. And in the end, the Psalms have to be open-ended because how can we put a full stop to the worship and the praise of God and His surpassing greatness? To do justice to the mighty acts of God and His surpassing greatness is a never-ending call on our lives. It's a never-ending task. But you know what? It's a never-ending joy as well. It's a joyful task. And it's going to take all of us, all of we've got, all of time, in fact, all of eternity. And Psalm 150 acts as an open door for us to that ongoing life task and privilege of praising God. Now, Bible commentator James Mays, and again, don't get him confused with James May of Top Gear fame, puts it like this. The book that began with a commendation of Torah, of the Lord, as the way of life, ends here with an invitation to praise of the Lord as the use of that life. And Psalm 150 opens up that life of worship for us by providing some answers to some open-ended questions. It's the open door of open-ended questions that are designed to get conversations going. And the psalm opens us up to the questions of where, why, how, who, and when to praise the Lord. Where should we praise the Lord? Well, verse 1 invites us to see that we should praise God in his sanctuary. It invites us to praise God in the highest heaven. Now, for the Jews, the place to worship God was in the temple in Jerusalem. They saw the temple as the place where God dwelt with his people. But they were also aware that God was so much greater than that, and the temple was really only just a glimpse into the reality that God was enthroned in heaven, beyond the boundary of the physical world. That's not way off. It's just stepping through. Perhaps the connection between those two are best seen in Isaiah's call to ministry in Isaiah chapter 6, where he is in the temple, and suddenly it's as if the curtains between heaven and earth are pulled aside, and he finds himself in the throne room of God. Or in the reading that we had from Revelation today, where John is in prayer, and suddenly there's an open door, and he's invited to step through it and finds himself before the throne of God. Not that he wasn't already there, not that he wasn't in God's presence, but somehow the reality of it became very, very real. Right. But while for the Jews the temple was the focal point of praise, a life of praise invites us to worship and give thanks to God, not only in places like this, but in all of life, in the whole of creation to the theological question of where should we worship God that the Samaritan woman at the well asked Jesus, his response, well, well, there's coming a time when place won't matter, when God will be worshipped in truth and in spirit. 
And at the crucifixion, the curtain in the temple is torn. And it's a way of saying that God no longer simply is contained there, but will dwell with humanity. Through the reconciliation of humanity with God and Jesus' death and resurrection, and through indwelling us by his very presence through the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a move today to place gathering for worship low on the list of priorities. To simply say that I can do it on my own, it's all about my alone time with God. In fact, C.S. Lewis used to say, why do I bother going to church to hear fifth-rate poems sung to sixth-rate tunes? You know? But then he realized that he was gathering with people who the very poor and the the very great, and he thought, this is wonderful. We have gathered together to be before God. Psalm 150 tells us that praise is polyphonic. It's symphonic. It is choral. And it starts in our gathering together. In 1 Peter, it says that we are living stones being built into the temple of God. God. The dwelling place of God is in the midst of us. And we have the assurance that God is in our midst, even if there's only two or three of us together. Verse 2 gives us the why we should praise God. It gathers up all the reasons that have gone before in the Psalms, God's creation, God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's bringing his people out of Egypt, God giving his word, God settling them in the promised land, God's provision, God's goodness to individuals and to the community, God's answer to prayer, God's presence in uh, times of lament and trouble, both individually and corporately, God keeping his word even when it meant taking them into exile, but God keeping his word as he brought them back from exile and reestablished them in the land. And Psalm 150 sums that all up in his saving acts of power. But it does not stop there. Remember, it's an open door, and it leaves the door open for that continuing story. The coming of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. The sending of the Holy Spirit. How the gospel has been passed on and worked out in the lives of individuals and transforming communities amid the churn and blur of history and how our stories have been joined with that story, and our voices have joined the choir in the temple, and our joys and our laments have been added to the Psalms, and we have come to know and experience God's saving acts of power. All those great acts of power, reflecting the very character and greatness of God, the surpassing greatness of God, shown in his love and grace. Praise the Lord. It's an open-ended invitation to praise because it's not just about God's past dealing with humanity. The final Psalms invite us to look forward to the coming of the kingdom of God, a time when God will reign and set things right. Many of the early Psalms are laments, wrestling with the brokenness of people in the world. But as we progress through the Psalms, there's more an emphasis on songs of praise. Not that we forget the pain and suffering in the world, but to praise God is a prophetic activity. It is to proclaim God's sovereign rule. 
It is to acknowledge God's kingdom until it comes in its fullness. And we live in the tension between the already and the not yet. The already because the kingdom of God has been established when its king, Jesus Christ, came, lived, died, and rose to life again. And we experience some of that in the fullness of life that we have in the Holy Spirit. But we await its completion with the coming of Christ when the kingdom will be established. And to praise God is to proclaim his ultimate victory. And what it does is allow us to see and to work with God at what that might look like as we live out our life of praise in our everyday life. As we pray, thy kingdom come. Whether we do it like Botticelli, or as I sang it, botch a celli. <laughs> then in verse 3 to 5, we have a list of how we are to worship the Lord. And this is a song that is meant for human singers. But the focus is on what accompanies those voices. And some people have tried to use this passage to quantify what is in and what is out when it comes to the worshipping of God. But we need to realize that in these verses is a comprehensive list of musical instruments. That the whole orchestra is here. Because in the ancient Near East you only had stringed instruments, wind instruments, and percussion. And they're all named. The list is wider now and maybe more wired and digital than stringed. But the call is still open. All should praise the Lord. Now, one of the saddest chapters in the modern church is what is called the worship wars. Okay? Churches have split and divided about what is appropriate music for worship. And I know bringing that up here is painful because this church has been affected by the worship wars. It's a generational thing. It's, uh, it's, it's being devastating. And churches split and divide about what is appropriate music for worship. And Psalm 150's answer is, it's simple. Bring it all. Bring it on. Now, when I was preparing this message, I went uh, looking for musical expressions of Psalm 150. So I did what everybody does. I Googled it. And I was amazed at the depth and the variety of hits. Uh, in fact, I felt like a DJ. The hits just keep on coming. There were Jewish chants. There were Gregorian chants by Romanian Orthodox monks. There was a, a soaring Episcopalian choir from New York. There were various hymns. There was the soft rock of Hillsong and vineyard churches. There was the soulful black gospel choirs. The rocky, upbeat bands. Even a hip-hop version, complete with amazing choreography. You know, which just captured the joyousness of worshipping God with timbrel, tambourine, and dance. But this is not a cacophony of competing sounds. Each instrument plays a part in the worship of God. There is an open-ended summons, but it's also both structured to give it solemnity and gravitas, and also it's bubbling with joy and spontaneity. The trumpet that is mentioned in verse 3 is a ram's horn used to summons people to worship. 
The lyre and harp were instruments used by the Levites and professional musicians to accompany professional choirs. The timbrel, tambourine and dance and the strings and pipes are the instruments of the congregation in response to that. There is a place for both the formal and the informal, the outstanding professional musicianship and the out-of-tune amateur exuberance. The great performance pieces and the sing-alongs, the happy, clappy, tap-your-feet, move-about, and the soaring, stilling, reflective artistry. And the two lines about the symbols is not that percussion takes precedence, that it all has to be done with a driving beat. It's not all uns uns music. <laughs> symbols are used in two ways in worship, to let people know that they needed to listen because this next part was important. It was like the gong at a dinner party or the polite clinking of glasses to get everyone's attention. So you could hear what was coming next. And in this case, it's the word of God. But also, they were used for a second reason, when it was time to respond. And the response was a festive shout. So there was the, the symbols would sound, and the second symbol uh, would just, and everybody would, would shout. And the second mention of symbols here in the Psalms comes right before the call for everything that has breath to praise the Lord. Everything to raise a a festive shout, a glorious hallelujah, a cheer-hoo, a yee-haw, yeah, you know, to God. And there are echoes of the structure of Psalm 150 of our Reformed tradition, to gather, to confess and worship, to prepare us to hear the word, hear the word read and preached and proclaimed, and then responding to the word with praise and with mission. You know, and my hope is that within that, here in our morning service, that in our worship, we would develop what's called a blended worship style, where we can take the best of our traditions, the songs that have stood the test of time, and that great treasure trove of ritual and meaning and depth, and we can also have the best of the new and the now and together use it to hallelujah and praise the Lord, opening us up to the presence of God as the Spirit speaks through his word, read and preached and proclaimed. And everything that has breath leads nicely into looking at the who of worship. And we may simply see instruments here, and I've often heard this called the musician's psalm, but that's not the case. Because behind the instruments, it is a summons to all people to come and to worship. The ram's horn was blown to invite people to come by the priests, and they are to come and lead and direct, and the lyre and harp were used by the Levites. So yes, the musicians were called to come and worship, but the other instruments are everyday instruments of the people. All of us are called to come and join our joy and creativity in worship. The tambourine and dance were used by women in festivals and times of celebration, and the men would play the, uh, the, the um, pipes and the strings. So, you know, it's inclusive of men and women to bring who we are and to add that to the worship. Music and dance are also the expression of culture, and it's an invitation to bring that as well to worship. For example, in Thailand, we heard a missionary say to us, 
that the church was flourishing away from Western influences. And the main in, in the tribal areas, because the main theologians and Bible teachers in those areas are choreographers. They're choreographers. And they use traditional, excuse me, if I'm being a bit offensive here, they use traditional dance to tell the gospel. If you know, they embody the gospel. And I've seen it here in New Zealand when we were at St. St. John's, I, I went to a Tokelauan fellowship one time and, and they got up and they started to do their, their dances uh, while somebody was beating the heck out of an olive uh, oil drum. And uh, one of the Tokelauan elders said to me, this is a dance which tells a gospel story because in our culture what is important is transmitted through dance. And I said, oh, you should do that in church. And he said, well, we don't do it in church because the Western missionaries said it wasn't appropriate to dance in church. <laughs> Obviously, they hadn't read Psalm 150. In the end, it's an invitation to all people, all that have breath, to come and join us in praising the God who they have come to know. It's a missional call. And it even goes wider because it goes to the whole of creation. The whole of creation is called to come together and to acknowledge and praise its creator. And that's why creation care is such an important part of the gospel. Finally, it opens up the question of the when of a life of worship. And maybe for some of us, that's a closed question. And the answer is 9.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning for an hour. And it may just be a little bit longer if Howard goes on. <laughs> and you know, that's great because the psalm is in the context of gathered public worship. However, it's also a call to worship that's placed at the end of the book. It says, as I said before, an open door into a life lived in praise to the Lord. The win of worship is now and always. So I just want to finish by uh, offering you the opportunity to go through the open door. May you respond and accept this open invitation to a life of worship in song, in word, in deed, in all the things that you do. May you step through the open door of Psalm 150. May you continue to aff affirm the importance of gathering and worshipping together, structuring worship into your busy lives, making it a priority. But may you also find praising God something that is reflected in everything you do. May you be attentive to the ram's horn above the blaring traffic horns, inviting you to see and to know and to acknowledge saving God's saving act and his surpassing greatness as you experience them in your every day. Now, I happened to be daydreaming at the lights the other day. Well, to tell you the truth, I was on my cell phone. Ooh. 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 And there was a horn blast from the car behind me to wake me up to the fact that the lights had changed. I did resist returning the traditional hand signal of thanks or acknowledgement. But, you know, we often need the horn blast to wake us up to seeing God's great saving acts and surpassing goodness. Because we can forget. We can miss them. So I want to encourage you to, this week, 
not to wait for the horn blast behind you, not to do it while you're waiting at the lights, but just take time each day to write down somewhere in your prayer journal or on your hand or um, type it onto your computer or put it on your phone or whatever. Write down each day five things you want to praise God for. You know, will you do that? Guarantee at the end of the day, if you do that, you'll look back and you'll go, wow, God has been at work. May you find also that your feet are dancing in tune to the praise of God as you delight in God's word and you're aware of God's guiding your footsteps in times of lament or joy as you weave your way, that silly dance that we do through daily life. May you hear the symbols calling you to be quiet. This is important. And to listen as God speaks. And may you also hear the symbols of the Spirit call you to festive shout, to voice God's goodness to all those around you. And may you find your life being a psalm, a song to God. As Adrian Ulrich says in Lifestyle Evangelism, our words are the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. But our lives and our love are the wonderful tune that makes it catchy. So may your lives be a song to God. And may your song be an open-ended invitation for everything that has breath to come and know and praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Woo! getting Pentecostal up in here. <laughs> Praise the Lord! Yeah. Woo! Yep, yep.